Today is lesson nine in our current teaching series titled Revolution, Christ Over Culture. If you've been with us, you know that uh, this series is based on the New Testament book of Acts. And we have seen throughout the narrative of Acts, we're going to arrive at the sixth chapter this morning in lesson nine. We're going to cover chapter six, verse one, and the entirety of the sixth chapter and the entirety of the seventh chapter and close it off at chapter seven at verse 60. And I promise it's not going to be that long of a lesson as what that introduction may make it sound like. But we've seen so many dynamics within the narrative of the book of Acts. If you remember looking at this from a standpoint of a revolution, which that's exactly what it was. Christianity was an absolute world-shaking revolution. Just as much as it was then, that is what God intends for us, His followers, to be in this otherwise hopeless and helpless world that we live in. He intends for us to be revolutionary. And in the light of viewing the narrative of Acts as a revolution, we saw that uh, it had very humble beginnings and very unique beginnings compared to any other revolution in history. We saw that their leader, Jesus, had been crucified and buried and all hope was lost amongst his followers. And then suddenly and miraculously he was resurrected on the third day. You know the story. He spends about 40 days with his closest followers and shows himself, reveals himself to them in manners that were absolutely unprecedented. And then one day in mid-conversation, as they're walking along, Jesus had given them some, uh, some very direct promise and instruction regarding that promise. And then one day, just mid-conversation, after offering those promises, Jesus just ascends into heaven. Can you imagine someone standing before you talking. Can you imagine if I was standing before you talking and the uh, roof just opened up and the skies opened up and I just disappeared? Some of you, that would maybe make your day if that happened. But Jesus just disappears up into the sky and his followers are left absolutely bewildered. There's no other revolution that is recorded within the pages of history that begins with the disappearance of the leader. But Jesus uh, does things very uniquely. And he, he made the promise to his followers, if you will wait in Jerusalem, you will receive the promise of the Father. So they gather in an upper room. I believe it to be the same upper room where they took the Lord's Supper, the last supper with Jesus prior to his crucifixion. And there they begin to develop a game plan for how they're going to fill the void of ministry to reach their world. And they didn't know exactly what all this would look like, but nonetheless, they wasted no time. It is safe to say, and we can say with confidence, that God blessed their determination. Suddenly, in just a, just a chapter later, the church goes from a small gathering of about 120 people to a gathering of about 3,120 people. After mass salvations at the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, which was the feast that commemorated the giving of the law. And there's a lot of detail there, and I don't have time to go through it today, but you can look us up on YouTube, on our smartphone app, on our website, journeystanford.com, and go back and listen to those lessons because they're imperative to understanding the narrative of Acts. And so anyway, 
The church begins to experience substantial growth. I mean, just uh, incredible growth. They, they grow by 3,000 in a day. And then we see that later on in Acts chapter 2, the record is given by Luke, the author, that the church was growing daily. The Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. We fast forward a couple more chapters, and we see there's another event where thousands of people are saved. And so now the church is well over 5,000 people and growing and growing every Every single day, but is still recognized as a sect of Judaism. It is recognized as a denomination under the Jewish umbrella, if you will. It has not yet been recognized as what we know of the church as today. But nonetheless, this unprecedented growth had really, really, really caught the attention of many people in Jerusalem. If you remember, I presented to you that the beginning of the narrative of Acts is actually centered around Pentecost. And, uh, and which was 50 days after the Passover, which are two, uh, two feasts on the Jewish calendar that are considered pilgrimage feasts. So there would have been many people in Jerusalem at the occurrence of that first New Testament Pentecost who did not live in Jerusalem. They were simply there staying with aunts and uncles and long-lost cousins and people they went to college with, just crashing in their basement for a few days to celebrate the pilgrimage feast of Passover and Pentecost. And normally, typically... After Pentecost, they would have all went home. But because of the incredible, miraculous occurrence of that first New Testament Pentecost, they all just kind of stuck around. And we all know, if you've ever had company, company is really nice and they're really entertaining and it's just a breath of fresh air for a few days. And then they just kind of start to stink. So as we arrive at the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, we've got to keep in mind that company has been in town for some six months at this point in time. But it's not really gotten uh, stale. It's not really, the, the company has not begun to stink because they've been overwhelmed with everything that God has been doing. And yes, we saw instances twice already, once in the fourth chapter and once in the fifth chapter, where those, that group of believers in Jerusalem were persecuted for their faith. The persecution was very minimal in comparison to what we will see beginning today and later on in the narrative of Acts and the entire history of the New Testament church. But we arrive at the sixth chapter. Everyone is still kind of gathered around. They're hanging out in Jerusalem. God's doing incredible things. Yes, there's been some ups and downs. There's been a bit of a roller coaster. But they have lived in absolute abundance. Now, we're going to cover the sixth and seventh chapters both in their entirety today and I want you to understand something going forward. There are two separate reasons occurring in these two chapters that uh Two separate instances, I should say, that are very important thresholds for the church and for the narrative of Acts. They're incredibly important for two different reasons. First of all, we see that prior to the sixth chapter, the church has really known no formal structure of leadership. And so that's been completely absent of, uh, the, out of the church lineup up until this point. And not only that... But we've also seen that persecution has been very minimal. Things are going to change in the sixth chapter as we see a great implementation of structure. The beginning of structure that would lead to uh, structure that's been perceived as godly throughout the 2,000 plus year history of the church. And then also we're going to see in the seventh chapter 
We're going to walk over that threshold that takes us into a time of persecution, a time of great trouble for the believers, and a time where we're going to find ourselves incredibly inspired by their faithfulness, their dedication, and their commitment. Now, typically, when we study the book of Acts, we would divide the sixth chapter from the seventh chapter. And probably, if you've really uh, prepared yourself for today's lesson, as you should have, and you've read the study guide, and you've read the Acts chapter six and seven in preparation of what we're going to talk about today, you're probably sitting back and thinking, Pastor, how on earth do these two events correlate together? How can they be understood together? And I want to present to you this morning that this narrative cannot be properly understood when we segregate the events of the sixth chapter, which is the implementation of structure within the church, from the, uh, the threshold of persecution that the church is going to walk over in the seventh chapter. The narrative is only properly understood when we compare those two events together because they feed. What I want to show you this morning is those two events feed off of one another. So let's begin with the sixth chapter. This is the implementation of structure. I told you this is about six months after that experience at the first New Testament Pentecost, right? Now, there is uh, something rather odd that we're going to encounter here as we read the first few verses of the sixth chapter. We've not really yet seen an internal dilemma for the church in the book of Acts. So far, pretty much the only internal dilemmas we've seen is back at the first chapter when they're praying about who is going to fill Judas Iscariot's empty ministry role. And then the other dilemma I think we saw in the fifth chapter, or the fourth chapter perhaps, the fifth chapter actually, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and they fell dead right in the middle of the church service at the offering time. Those are really the only perceived internal dilemmas. So far, every dilemma the church has experienced has been external. It's been persecution from the outside, but we're going to encounter something very different. And for me, as a pastor of 20 years, I found so much comfort that here in the book of Acts, those early believers faced in internal struggles, internal dilemmas, internal problems, and they somehow overcame those problems and continued on with the ministry. Now, I'm thankful for a church that is, for the most part, very unified and very much together and does not entertain uh, things that are backbiting and divisive in nature and conversations of the like. But let me say this morning to the church as a whole, the world is waiting on us, the church as a whole, not just us, to finally say we may have differences, but here's how we can move beyond those differences and bring the hope of the gospel of Jesus to the entire world. That, after all, is our greatest calling. This event in chapter 6 is going to appear a bit divisive. And it's a glimpse into a rare internal conflict, but thankfully we're going to see something absolutely incredible make its way into the scene, onto the stage, on the heels of this otherwise divisive event. Read with me in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint rose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve disciples summoned the congregation of the rest of the disciples and said, It is not desirable, remember that word, we're going to look at it in detail in a moment, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, my brothers, select from you among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom you may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
The statement found approval amongst the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. That means he was a recent Jewish convert. And these they brought before the apostles, and they prayed over them and laid their hands on them. And check this out. The word of God kept spreading. The number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the Jewish priests became obedient to the faith. So this division is, uh, let, me, let me just kind of give you an interpretation of how this division came about and what its nature was. It was basically a division between those Jews who lived in Jerusalem, who were hosting the guests in their basement and in their upstairs bedrooms and in the spare rooms that they had, and they'd been letting those guests live there with them for some six months. It was basically essentially a division between those homegrown Jews and then those foreign Jews. Because you see, those foreign Jews said, well, our people, our widows who came along with us to the pilgrimage feast of Passover and stuck around for Pentecost and then all this awesome stuff began to happen, our widows are being neglected. Listen, guys, you're taking good care of your people, but you're just completely entirely forgetting about the people that we brought with us. And I love that this is a Call to action for the church. This is a come to Jesus meeting, we would call it. This is an instance where they said we must stop and examine what we're doing and whether or not we're doing it for the right motives and is it really effective. The church would benefit a great deal this morning if on a regular basis we would stop and examine ourselves and ask ourselves that same identical set of questions. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? And how effective is it in the manner that we're carrying it out? So they were saying you're neglecting our widows, but it wasn't, I don't believe it was just a selfish motivate, selfishly motivated conversation, but rather I believe that these foreign Jews who did not live in Jerusalem were not just saying you're forgetting about our widows, you don't care about us, but they were merely presenting to the leadership of the church, you're missing an opportunity. You're neglecting a great opportunity to serve someone here. And here's where the leadership of the church is to be commended because they stood back and they recognized what was going on. But I love the verbiage that's given here as a pastor. Man, this is something I cling to in the scripture because they're the leaders of the church, the 12 disciples. They all get together and they kind of scratch their heads a little bit and they say, guys, I think that there's a valid point to this argument. And I think that we need to give some attention to this. And I think somehow we need, to, we need to make sure everyone's taken care of, but perhaps someone else of the 12 speaks up and says, well, I can't, I can't commit to that because I'm already so busy uh, with my ministry schedule. And somebody else says, yeah, we should, we should implement some type of structure and let someone else do this. So the, the grand consensus of the 12 disciples is this rebuttal that, yes, this is a worthy and a valid cause, but we cannot neglect the Word of God, the precious Word of God, to merely serve tables to provide people for food. Now, if we're not careful, we'll see this, uh, this, this, this verbiage, this declaration as being a bit on the arrogant side. If you remember, we encountered another, uh, another discourse in the fifth chapter that appeared to be the same when uh, I think it was Simon Peter that said to the Jewish rulers, he said, it's better for us to obey God than to obey you. And I told you last Sunday that was not a statement of arrogance, but it was a statement of a recognition of 
of a higher calling. It was not meant to, uh, to, to disregard or disrespect Jewish leadership, but rather it was an implementation of the higher calling that they'd been given in life. And that carries over into the sixth chapter in their work within the church when they said, listen, this is a valid need. This is a legitimate argument, but it is not right for us to leave the Word of God, to leave the ministry of prayer, to leave the focus on preaching the gospel, and just serve food to people when there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of you who can pick up a spoon and put food in someone else's plate. They recognize two things. Number one, a greater, higher calling. And number two, the necessity of an implementation of structure. You see, before now, the church had lacked nothing. They lacked nothing in the areas of passion, power, perseverance, or purity. But there was something that was kind of missing in this, a uh, missing piece, if you will, in this ecclesiastical puzzle. And the missing piece was structure. You see, as God had enlarged their territory, so they needed to enlarge their structure. This called for a different and greater form of spiritual architecture than what was needed for 120 believers in an upper room some six months prior to this. And let me say this morning, we can rely on the Holy Spirit and we should rely on the Holy Spirit. We can be thankful for what we bring to the table and our talents and our gifts and abilities. But let me say this morning that ministry success relies upon structure. Ministry success relies upon structure. Structure is imperative for us to be able to do what God has called us to do in the manner in which He has called us to do that thing. There's a word here that occurs that we get our, Greek, our English word deacon from. If you're raised in a Southern Baptist church such as I was, then you, you probably have a, a, an ideology, if you will, of what a deacon is that is totally polar opposite of what the ideology would have been in the book of Acts. When the disciples said, we can't leave the Word of God to serve tables, the, word, the words serve tables in the English language is one word in the Greek. And in the Greek, it's one word, diakonos. And diakonos is literally translated as a table waiter. So yeah, they didn't have Cheddar's and O'Charlie's and uh, uh, the Bluebird and my Guadalajara that my lovely bride loves so much. They didn't have those places where someone would wait on their tables, but at a feast or at a wedding or at some type of large family event when people would wait on one another at the table, the diakonos or the deacon was the person who came around and made sure that they had a drink, that they had food, that they had silverware, that they had everything they needed to have. And that's literally the meaning of a deacon when we study that later on in Paul's writings and he says if any man desires the office of a deacon he desires a good thing he's not talking about somebody who sits in the church and makes uh, no contribution whatsoever to the ministry but yet makes all the decisions he's literally talking about somebody who's going to get down and, and do the dirty work of ministry someone who's willing to serve the tables so that those called into the ministry can maintain their focus on preaching the word of God this word diakonos, Luke uses it in his gospel. We know that Luke wrote the book of Acts and he wrote the gospel according to Luke. In chapter 4, verse 39, when Jesus has just healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. If ever there was a, a, you know, kind of a shady miracle, Simon Peter, Jesus, uh, do you really want to, to heal my mother-in-law? I mean, you know, 
uh, this, that's maybe a joke that I could uh, move on and leave alone this morning. But, but Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And she gets up. She's healed from a fever. And she begins to make Jesus supper. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 39, we see that same word that she served Jesus after her healing. That's the word diakonos. She served him. She waited on the table that he sat at. There was an understanding within the church that those men called into the ministry could not forsake the gospel of Jesus and the preaching thereof and the preparation thereof and the prayer that must surround those things in order to do basic forms of ministry. And I'm going to say some things this morning that I want to kind of preface with this statement that uh, I am not upset and I'm not mad at anybody or anything of that nature. I have no reason to be that I know of. But I want to say some things about church structure before we move into the meat of today's lesson. It is imperative for the church in America today to understand that the pastor cannot be the guy who does everything that nobody else wants to do. The pastor cannot be the guy who is responsible responsible for everything to do with a building. I've been in these situations before, and uh, it's expected in, in, in other situations, at other time frames, where it was expected for the pastor to be in charge of changing the HVAC filters and painting, uh, you know, painting a, a wall that got scratched up or fixing this and fixing that. And I'm kind of a do-it-yourselfer, so I can, get, I can get sucked into those things because I enjoy them. But when that happens, suddenly, not only do I have a, not only does that beautiful lady over there have a honeydew list for me to do at home. Now I have a honeydew list at the church as well. And in those times, you think, well, I'm helping the church. I'm assisting the church. It's something that we're not necessarily paying somebody else to do, so we're retaining the funds. And then you get a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper. And then somebody says, well, I'm, I'm, I said I would do this ministry, but I can't really do this ministry this week. So, Pastor, I'm just wore out and I'm, t- I'm, I'm, I'm tired and I'm struggling. So here, I just need you to hold this for a minute. And then we get that on our plates. And then we are, we're bombarded, and rightfully so. That's what we're here to do is to help. But we're bombarded with personal problems and struggles and the need for marriage and family counseling, counseling to overcome depression and anxiety and things like that from you wonderful people that we're honored to serve. But then we become so burdened down with so many responsibilities that Sunday morning declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the last thing that we possibly have energy for. And if I have learned anything in nearly 20 years of being a pastor, it's that this must set at the top of my value hierarchy in ministry and in life. I love to counsel. I love to help people. I love to help people who are in need. Marriages who are facing brokenness. And I, I love to lay floors and cut trim and paint walls. Well, maybe not paint walls, but other things. I love to do those things. But this is at the top of my value hierarchy. It is what I esteem most important in life. And if I go back in my life to the time I was 17 years old and God called me into ministry, He didn't call me to lay floors and cut trim and paint walls. He didn't necessarily call me to do some of these other things that are entailed within a pastor's job description, but He called me to preach the gospel of Jesus. And there is a recognition here of a higher calling. They are not declaring that they are too good to serve tables, but they're literally recognizing if we have to get down there and do this, 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 and this, then this is going to take a back burner and all the growth that the church has experienced will be null 
and void. So if we want to grow today, we must implement that same ideology of structure that says that we are not just here to be entertained. We are not merely hogs at the trough, but rather we are all workers, laborers in the harvest field. This understanding leads into something that is absolutely incredible in the narrative of Acts. They pick out seven men, right? And these seven men are chosen, they're prayed over, and they say, these are the seven guys who are going to make sure that all these widows are fed, make sure that all these tables get the food served off of them, and that nobody goes hungry. And us twelve, we can go back to our prayer closets, and we can study the Word, and we can preach the Gospel, and that can be our focus. But there's a highlight, there's a spotlight, if you will, that just kind of hovers over one of these twelve, and his name is Stephen. And the scripture describes Stephen as being a true servant. He truly has a servant's heart. This is a guy that's not necessarily called to preach, we see, but he's called to be a deacon, to simply serve the mac and cheese and the soup and the bread and the roast and the potatoes and everything off the table. And so he's serving widows day in and day out. But Stephen was not just somebody who knew, to scoop food, knew how to scoop food out with a giant spoon, but Stephen was someone who was incredibly passionate for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's actually described here in the 8th verse, I believe it is, as being a man who is full of grace and of power. And so he is so dynamically charged about the gospel of Jesus that he could not scoop out that mac and cheese onto a widow's plate without saying, isn't God good? I mean, look at how he gave his only son, Jesus, for you and I. I mean, this is the kind of guy that's just, he's just eat up, eats, lives, sleeps, and breathes Jesus. And one day, in his ministry as he's feeding people some people come along who don't necessarily agree with Stephen and it's found in the latter part of the sixth chapter and there's a little bit of an altercation and they begin to butt heads not because of what Stephen was doing but rather because of the passion with which he did that and the verbiage that he used declaring the gospel and so we would think that perhaps that perhaps this altercation would just kind of fade out and it would just kind of become nothing. But these guys would not let it go. The scripture tells us they were known as the freedmen. They were the synagogue of the freedmen. They were from Cyrenian and Alexandria. And they were, as the scripture says in verse 10 at chapter 6, they were specifically unable to cope with the wisdom of Stephen. Now, I like that because it does not denote that Stephen was necessarily this, this great orator who could speak in a way that, that everybody was just moving by his words, and it was not necessarily that Stephen was so hyper-spiritual that he was disconnected from everyone that he served, but rather that God was using him as such a mouthpiece that they could not contend with the wisdom that Stephen spoke with. They just couldn't stand with it. They just uh, they couldn't handle it, if you will. And so they begin to be uh, concerned, and they begin to butt heads, if you will. There's an altercation, and the synagogue of the freedmen, these Cyrenians and Alexandrians, just would not leave the subject alone. And so they just kept coming back to Stephen, and when they realized they could not win an argument with him. They said, I'm going to go back and we're going to get everybody we can in this community riled up and we're going to win this argument. So they constructed a crowd and they coerced that crowd and they brought that crowd back and then they took Stephen from behind the table where he was serving the pot roast one day and they said, you're going to come here and you're going to give us an answer for what it is that you're speaking about this messianic figure named Jesus. And so Stephen says, I'd be more than happy to. No, 
nothing would make me happier. And he does that. And all this angry mob looks at him. And the sixth chapter ends with the declaration that they look at Stephen. And they saw his face as the face of an angel. And he begins in the seventh chapter to proclaim the gospel. The high priest looks at Stephen. He said, are these things really so? At verse 1, chapter 7, are they really so? Is this really that you're accused of? What you're really saying that Jesus was somehow the Messiah. Is that what you really believe? And is that what you're really declaring? And Stephen opens up and through the rest of the seventh chapter nearly, we see an incredible discourse that begins all the way back with Abraham and encounters all the high points of the Old Testament and the life of Jesus, the death and crucifixion of Jesus, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and how that applied to those men's life. And I can just imagine Stephen declaring the gospel with such passion and such purity and such dynamic and he's just laid it all out for these men who are already angry and then we find ourselves at the end of the seventh chapter and rather than responding with repentance they respond more angry than they were originally chapter 7 verse 54 closes the story and it says now when all the crowd had heard these words they were cut to the heart and they began to gnash at Stephen with their teeth. Now, studying this exegetically, I don't necessarily find that it means they ran up to him and began to bite him. But it means, I think, this is my personal interpretation studying this in the original Greek language, I believe it means that they were so angry that they were gritting their teeth. They were just, oh, I'm so angry at this guy because of the, declar- the declaration he's making, because of the message he's declaring. And so they're so angry that they're just biting their teeth down. And then in verse 55, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and he gazes intently into heaven. And check this out. And he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said to everybody else, he just couldn't hold it in. He said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But all the people cried out. This just set them over the edge. They cried with a loud voice and they covered their ears. They said, we cannot hear any more of this. And they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man whose name was Saul. And they went on to stone Stone Stephen, as Stephen called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he passed away. Now just keep in mind, Had those 12 disciples at the beginning of the story, had they been stuck serving tables? Had they been stuck serving tables and it just been something else on their ministry schedule for them to do? We would have never met Stephen. We would have never met his passion. We would have never met his, uh, his, his love for Christ. We would have never met his awesome ability to portray Jesus as the Messiah. It is within church structure that we begin to see God reap the harvest within individual hearts and lives. And I don't believe for a moment that the biblical blueprint of church is for some people to do the work. As the old adage is, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. I don't believe at all that that's the biblical blueprint. But I believe that we are a puzzle and each of us are a piece of the puzzle and our work in the ministry. Not our sitting on a chair, not our giving necessarily, not uh, just saying I love my church or I pray for my pastor, but our actual work in 
in the ministry is what puts that puzzle piece in. And let me say this morning, we're missing a lot of puzzle pieces. We need to plug those in and we need to all say together because it's when the church came together that Stephen came out of the woodworks. And it was after that that he declared this beautiful presentation of the gospel to these men who were otherwise so angry about it. But you say, Pastor, why did it have to end with the death of Stephen? So far, when great men have proclaimed the gospel, minus a little persecution in the 4th and 5th chapter, so far in the narrative of Acts, when great men have declared the gospel, it has ended with mass salvations, not individual casualties. Where do we fit this in? Where do we, how do we tie this in to the rest of the story? How does it even make any sense? And furthermore, what about the revolution? If the church is to bring about a revolution to that age, and then they stand up and declare the message of the revolution, and they are stoned to death, which I'm going to talk about next week, or in the next lesson, I should say, was actually an illegal act under Jewish law. They were stoned to death. What does that do? How does that harm and damper? The revolution. I want to show you this morning in closing that what Stephen possessed in his personal relationship with Jesus and what those other 12 men that we read about at the beginning possessed in their personal relationship with Jesus and what these thousands of people who had converted even though maybe they didn't necessarily see it at that point in that manner from Judaism Christianity, what they had in their personal relationship with Jesus, would soon be proven that they were not merely called to live a good life on this earth, but they were called to a life that goes beyond the one on this earth. I believe Stephen understood that his greatest purpose, his eternal calling, was not necessarily to do with that pot roast and that spoon, but his greatest calling transcended this world. What do I quote so often that Paul the Apostle said, if we have hope only in this life, we're of all men most miserable. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes this life gets us down. Sometimes this life floods us with depression and anxiety. Sometimes this life just causes us to question, why do I choose to go on? Why not call it quits today? But because of our relationship with Jesus, we're given a hope that far transcends this earthly life that we know. For Paul would say like this to the Corinthians, he said, I has not seen, nor has an ear heard, nor has it ever even entered into the hearts of a man, the things that God has in store for those that love Him. We're given the promise. John saw the, the, the new Jerusalem in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he's, he's, he's exiled on the island of Patmos, separated from his family by oceans of water. And the very first thing he notices, there was no more sea. There was nothing else to divide us. And I saw God wiping away every tear from every eye. And there was no more sorrow. There was no more crying. There was no more pain because all the former things had passed away. And so many times we forget about the eternal aspect of our relationship with Jesus, but I'm so incredibly thankful that our hope does not end when this life ceases, but it far transcends what we know in this earth. 
Some of you have understood this this year and in the recent days, in the recent months, weeks. When you've unexpectedly buried loved ones. Because it is then that we fully grasp, or in a more full sense anyway, the value of an eternal reward for the believer. What about Stephen? What about Stephen? Was this just what happened? Was he just so struck on heaven that he was just like, you know what, I'm going to preach even what I know you don't like, and you can stone me to death, and that's okay. I believe there's something greater here. In the American church, we preach a message that sounds something like this. That Jesus will bring so much purpose to you that it will make life worth living. But I believe the greatest miracle in how Jesus transforms a person's life is not how that He gives so much purpose that makes life worth living. But he gives so much purpose that it makes death worth dying. Not just about, I feel better about myself where I'm at today, but man, I have, I have totally been apprehended by a concept that I could give my life for. I have found myself on a mountaintop. Should it be required of me that I'm willing to die upon? That's commitment to the gospel of Jesus. That is the atmosphere that fed the revolution known as Christianity in the book of Acts. I want to ask you this morning, how would you describe your relationship with Jesus? Is it something that perhaps just brings you to church on Sundays, on occasion, maybe weekly? Or is it really and truly something that you say, God, I'm willing Give my life for you. Should it be required of me, I'm willing to give my life for you. Jesus made that declaration. If you want to follow me, take up your cross. A sure symbol of death was a Roman crucifix. The cross. Follow me. The backwards nature of the kingdom is that he who loses his life will find it. That's what Jesus offers to you this morning. And you're not going to find that just wandering in from church uh, from time, into church from time to time. You're not just going to find that even just being involved in church and then forgetting about Jesus through the week. But you only find that when you say, God, everything about me is yours. I give myself to you. This very instance regarding Stephen. As terrible and as tragic as it was, sparked the interest of a young man whose name was Saul. And we're going to read about Saul in the coming weeks and how that he became the most integral figure to the furthering of the gospel. And it was Stephen's passion that caught his attention. My friend, the world is waiting on you. And it's waiting on me. May today be the day that we say, God, everything I have is yours. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Father, we're so thankful.